We are parents, we are doctors, we are first responders, teachers, and concerned citizens who have found ourselves at a crossroads. We see our freedoms being stripped away and we can no longer stay silent. We are millions strong, united in a thundering voice and imperative mission that cannot and will not be ignored. We are standing up for the basic human right to raise our own children, earn a living, and make our own medical decisions without the tyrannical overreach that has been forced upon us here in California, across the country, and around the world. We are here to amplify the voices, moving the needle, bringing forth truth, and provide education and resources with tangible tools and expert insights. We are The Unity Project, and this is our podcast. What's up, everyone? I'm Laura Sextro, CEO of The Unity Project and your podcast host. On today's episode, I have a very revealing conversation with one of the first frontline COVID whistleblowers and author of the book, Undercover Epicenter Nurse, Nurse Erin. We dig into her experience at Elmhurst Hospital in New York, where she exposed the blatant fraud, negligence, and greed that led to hundreds, if not thousands, of unnecessary deaths. Nurse Erin gives a heartbreaking account of patient neglect, non-consenting experimentation, nurses being paid to stay silent, and the evidence she has that could lead to a Nuremberg 2.0. I hope you find this conversation as eye-opening as I did. All right. Well, we're really excited today to be joined by Nurse Erin. Uh, Nurse Erin has spent her life fighting to serve and protect the freedoms of everyday Americans. At just 17 years old, she joined the United States Army and was deployed to Iraq when the battle just began in early 2003. After returning home, she turned her focus, drive, and dedication to defending our most deeply held values on American soil as a soldier and a nurse. She is a registered nurse and one of the first frontline COVID whistleblowers. She's a best-selling author of Undercover Undercover Epicenter Nurse, How Fraud, Negligence, and Greed Led to Unnecessary Deaths at Elmhurst Hospital. She's an Army combat veteran, and she's a co-founder of America's Clinic. Welcome. Thank you so much for being here, Nurse Erin. I tell you what, I read your background and I was really, really excited to do this podcast. So tell me, let's let's just kick it off by, by you giving a little bit of your background and what led you into this fight. Yeah, thank you for having me. Um, I really appreciate what you guys are doing as well. Um, you know, I think sometimes I, I like to call myself an accidental activist because I never, you know, imagined in a million years, one, that, you know, we would be where, where we are as far as where, you know, our country is and, I mean, our, our, our world is. Um, but some of us, I guess, are, are called to do things that, you know, we, we never expected. And, and that's kind of where my, my story is. Um, I grew up in a small town in Wisconsin, like three stoplights, you know, everybody knew the name, the cheers, you know, you know, and I always knew that there was kind of more out in the world and I wanted to explore it. Um, My whole family's always been very patriotic. Um, My grandpa's a combat Navy vet and um, I wanted to do something you know, to, to give back and serve my country and just experience life. So I ended up um, surprising everybody and joining the, the military. Um, I was originally going in to, to be a nurse and then I scored really high on my ASVAB and they're like, well, you know, you can pretty much pick whatever you want. I'm like, all right, what's the coolest job where I can like still help people? <laughs> and um, they ended up- and what was that? What was the I coolest job? Going, yeah, uh, <laughs> the Army Special Operations. Um, out of, we trained at Fort Bragg. Um, I specifically picked civil affairs, but we worked with the Rangers, Special Forces, and Psychological Operations. So um, I think like that background gave me um, the ability to kind of read what was happening in early 2020. Um, right. And, and why I was able to recognize things that maybe other people didn't right away. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I ended up joining when I was 17 and September 11th happened when I was in basic training. And so I didn't really have a chance to think before I was already, you know, in war. So I went to Iraq. I was there for about a year and a half. And um, that's when I first started to see that there was government corruption (laughs) because, 
you know, they were even like the news at that point was reporting things that I knew were happening because I was there, you know, and I'm like, right. You know, and, and we were being put on like a lot of missions, busy work. And then they had the same kind of hero thing. Like everyone mm-hmm. gave us a round of applause when we came back. I was just like, felt like if I, like I joined not for the applause, I joined because I wanted to serve my country and I wanted to do something that was meaningful, um, mm-hmm. not for the round of applause. So that, that kind of happened again, right? With the healthcare heroes and the applause. Right. Um, got out and I ended up going into nursing school. Um, I've been a nurse for about 10 years um, and kind of originally saw uh, an experience for myself, uh, the pharmaceutical corruption within the mm-hmm. healthcare industry, but also at a very young age, my son was 12 months and he was injured by the MMR vaccine as well. So that kind of um, started my uh, journey down the, the healthcare industry, pharmaceutical corruption rabbit hole per se. Right. Right. And there's so much of it, unfortunately, that it's sadly it's on display. And it seems like we all turn a blind eye. I say we all just, um, the American public mm-hmm. unfortunately is not inundated with information about it, but yet inundated with information about, uh, the benefits of pharmaceuticals, right? I think it's, uh, the United States and New Zealand are the only two countries in the world that actually allow pharmaceutical uh, companies to directly market to the general population, right? To consumers, right? Normally it would be a B to B type relationship, but it's a B to C type relationship in the United States where you can't turn on any TV program without being inundated with pharmaceutical commercials. Yeah, you're exactly right. And, and I, I learned all this after nursing school. So I was very, like, I was gaslighted by my own pediatrician. And I always Mm -hmm. told my patients as a nurse and like, listen, like, you know, your body better than anyone else because you've lived in it your whole lives. And you know, your Mm -hmm. children's body better than anybody else because you've raised them their whole lives. And so I saw the gaslighting occurring and it also happened to me within the healthcare industry. And when I found out that these, like there was nothing I could really do despite the fact that now I have an injured son because of their their product, um, because mm-hmm. everything is liability free. And that is when I really started focusing in on why, you know, why, mm-hmm. why would they be liability free if they were so safe and effective? And then, you know, fast forward now, to, to 2020 and, and the same exact type of situation happened with these hospitals being liability free. It became a free for all and this is where bad things uh, occurred, you know, in right. side. Well, it's interesting because you talk about being liability free. Up to this point, you know, when we talk about vaccines, any other MMR, any other vaccine up to this point, that most Americans associate with just the normal uh, routine or schedule of vaccination. There's also this idea that you're taking the vaccination in order to prevent acquiring the virus, right? Well, now all of a sudden, and it never ceases to amaze me in that people aren't recognizing this, is that with this particular vaccine, you can still acquire and transmit the virus. So it just seems like it's a moot point and certainly would have no positive impact on public health and safety. Yeah, it's, I mean, I am a firm belief that we don't inject health, end of story. You know, we can't call a toxin a toxin and then inject it and expect to be healthy afterwards. And, you know, Americans, and I mean, really everywhere around the world, people want the quick fix. Mm-hmm. And that's why, you know, we're seeing patients with taking 10, 12, 13, 14 medications, and it's just a band-aid symptoms, like the root cause of um, helping people with things that, you know, they, they may need uh, to take care of in order to gain a better, you know, like overall health, you know, they're mm-hmm. just not focusing on that. They're focusing on more meds, more meds, more meds, because more medications equals sicker patients equals more money. Mm-hmm. Right. And- I mean, you never hear at all during this, the last two and a half years, any doctors going out and saying, Hey, it's probably a good idea for you to increase your vitamin intake. It's probably a good idea for you to, to lessen the sugar that's in your diet. It's 
probably a good idea to exercise and get healthy and mm -hmm. beef up your immune system. So it seems like there's an under, uh, um, an under messaging, I guess, if you will, of people, um, doctors or practitioners encouraging people to be healthy. Yeah. I mean, I live in Florida and I had mentioned early on that, you know, it's good for people to have sunlight. It's the mm -hmm. best source of vitamin D, which is uh, huge in our, you know, God-given immunities. And, you know, I, I, like people were making fun of it, you know, and they were locking people in their homes. Sure. Like, and, and our health officials in Florida and around, you know, around the country, we're agreeing with it. Yeah. Stay in your homes. It's better than being, a, I mean, it, it's just mind blowing to right. me. To, well, to and what we know now, um, I, I was just talking to Dr. Robert Malone and Dr. Peter McCullough and what we know now are there tremendous studies that are coming out showing the positive impacts of vitamin D as it relates to COVID-19. In fact, we're seeing that there are certain levels of vitamin D if the, that people have to have in their bloodstream. And if you have that, then um, virtually no one has died with that amount of vitamin D uh, in their system from COVID-19. Mm -hmm. And so there's a ton of information coming out and you know, talking about these lockdowns, they're fascinating. And, and I, and I want to get to a little bit more of your background and how you got into this fight, but you mentioned lockdowns and I know you have a military background. Mm -hmm. uh, one of the things that I've always said is that over the last two and a half years, what we've done to children is essentially akin to um, putting them in a POW camp. One of the first things that, that you see, especially when you look at the Vietnam War and what happened to the POWs, they, and they essentially isolate them, they socially isolate them and they put them in a box. And they do that to break the human spirit. And it's a very, very effective tactic. Mm -hmm. So what we've done to our children over the last two and a half years is essentially treat them like they're POWs to break their spirit. And it's been very successful. If you look at what's happened to these kids, um, you know, over the last two years, epidemic levels of suicide, epidemic levels of depression. It's, it's shocking what we have willingly sat sat aside and allowed the government to do to our children. Yeah. I mean, fear was, you know, their, their goal and, and, mm -hmm. you know, people, they want to believe that they're not being lied to. And that was where I guess my story came in to show them. Yes. In fact, your government and your healthcare professionals that you, you know, trust with your life essentially are lying to you. And they're okay with killing you, essentially. Mm -hmm. I shouldn't even say essentially, literally. Right. Um, because I have proof of that. You know, I have people say to me all the time, you know, you need to wear a mask. You need to get vaccinated. You need to get double vaccinated. You need to get every booster that's available. You need to do it for society because you're protecting other people. And I know people that have died of COVID. And I immediately stop them and say, you actually don't know a single person that's died of COVID. What you know are people that have been murdered by the establishment from, for denying them effective early treatment that could actually have saved their lives. And they're handcuffing doctors and they're preying on doctors in places like California. We have bills on the books that are, that are being presented for, for votes that will target doctor, any doctor that engages in the practice of medicine and follows the Hippocratic oath by first doing no harm. Uh, they will, and they do, if they do anything outside of the, the, the current framework of treatment protocols, they will be targeted. Their license will be up for review. So I actually agree with you hundred percent. I think people because people have been murdered uh, over the last two and a half years. Yeah. Um, you're, it's, it's, it's a hard, hard truth to swallow, you know, that, that nurses and doctors, you know, and, and there's a lot of them that went along with it too, you know, and, and look the other way. And that, that was hard for me um, being, I guess, in the epicenter, I guess that's where my story now, you know, begins. Um, well, that's fascinating. So let's, let's actually dive into that because I, again, reading your background and, and having been at ground zero at Elmhurst, and, and I think we all know uh, everything we saw on the news and the horror stories that were coming out with bodies in, in bags and in freezer trucks. I would love to know, let, let's explore how you got there, how you ended up at Elmhurst and what you saw. 
Um, so I was, you know, I, as I said before, I'm from Florida. So I was working in the tents actually outside um, in my emergency room. So I was in Florida. Yeah. Okay. And, and this is when we first started seeing, I remember seeing on the news, China back in February, 2020. And I remember I was at, I was at a work event and I saw it come up and I'm like, here we go. I had a very weird inkling that something was going to, something was going to happen. And, and I think I posted about it as well. And I don't know why it was just like that gut instinct. That was this like this something's off. Cause we were watching, do you remember watching them like falling over and they were spraying them with who knows what it was very eerie. It was like um, watching a scene from contagion or something. <laughs> yeah, it, it was, it was just, it's something felt really off about it. And, you know, I just kind of, I was going back to like the polio days when they were spraying them with like the DDT and ultimately that was causing, you know, further issues. So I'm like, what, what is that? So then right, like soon after that, you know, they had, furloughed a lot of the nurses that I worked with and they put us in tears based on experience. I have trauma experience, ICU experience, ER experience. I mean, I've worked everywhere you can imagine, you know, within the hospital. So they kept me around, but ultimately my hours were still cut short because we were waiting for this wave. So meantime, we're watching New York, you know. So let's, let me just explore that for a second. So you're saying that here we are on the brink of what we believe to be one of the biggest pandemics, at least as it was reported to, to the American population. And you are a nurse that has an incredible background in trauma and ICU, um, in, in critical patient care, and your hours were being cut as yeah. were other nurses. Okay. I mean, they were being cut so much. Uh, some nurses weren't even getting any hours at all. Um, cause they had us in tiers as like tier one, tier two, tier three, tier four. So tier four, like tier three and tier four were pretty much cut. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, the remaining tier, we were getting hours here and there, not enough. Cause there was no patients coming in. Cause they were locked, they locked everyone down. So my hours were cut so short that I ultimately picked up, uh, you know, a job at Instacart. Um, because everyone was too afraid to go to the grocery stores. I'm like, I will go. <laughs> so <laughs> something that my, I took my oldest son and we went grocery shopping. And at that time they weren't even having everyone wear masks, if you remember, but I. And why did that- you feel so, so comfortable doing that? Why did you feel so confident? I don't know. I, I cause I was seeing, it, it doesn't make sense. It, it didn't, nothing made sense to me to lock down healthy people And then even when we were in the hospital, you know, we had N95s that were, you know, fitted to us, but Mm -hmm. we weren't wearing them unless there was a COVID patient that possibly came in in a pandemic. You know, it's like everybody, you have to be, you don't, you don't know. Sure. And then they were having us keep them in paper bags. Like you're not even supposed to reuse uh, an N95, you know, with multiple different patients, one patient, toss it, get another one. So right. like, and then so you were, guys weren't even practicing standard preventing disease transmission protocols at that point. Not at all. Yeah. I mean, it, it just, no, nothing really made sense. The science was not being followed. We don't lock healthy people down. I, I wasn't seeing an influx of COVID patients and they kept the, pushing back the wave. Was there a shortage of N95s, is that why they were asking you to keep them in a, a paper bag and somewhat, you know, going around standard preventing disease transmission protocols? Was it a necessity to save supplies? Um, I think it, I don't, I mean, I think they were just ultimately hoarding them for what could come, but like that was a red flag in in itself because if we're going to use the this PP improperly, then it's going to spread exactly what we're trying to prevent. So why not use it properly, knowing that we had enough? Like our governor made sure that we had enough PPE in Florida. We always mm-hmm. did. Um, so that was you know there was just like all of these things and nothing made sense. And then they kept pushing back the wave and pushing back the wave. And I'm like, you know, 
there's there's got to be you know more more to this like what is going on in in new york why are people why are people why are we seeing freezer trucks and like it's this huge catastrophe why are we not seeing this in florida and then they started bringing travel nurses into the hospital in florida so they're bringing other travel nurses in into the hospital into the same er that i'm working at where i'm not even getting hours these travel nurses are getting paid three four five thousand dollars a week and so you guys were getting you had nurses that were furloughed you had nurses that were cut back on hours and at the same time, they were shipping nurse travel nurses into the hospitals, paying them exorbitant amount, uh, excuse me, exorbitant rates mm -hmm. to have them staffed. Yes. Wow. And you know, even bringing them up from Miami. So I'm like, why? Why are you here? And we had really nothing to do. We we did get a trickle of patients in. We were using the hydroxychloroquine and zinc, no problem. Nothing was banned. We were treating them effectively, and and it was an effective treatment. Yeah. I mean, we had 100% success rate by the time I, I left, you know, to New York, which was early April. And um, so the reason that they were using travel nurses, I later found out is because the government was funding them. So then the hospital didn't have to pay the regular staff. They were, you know, being able to utilize the FEMA funds, aka taxpayer funds to fund the nurses to come into these hospitals, which mm -hmm. ultimately, I believe, at the end of the day was hush money, because nobody wanted to lose that paycheck. These nurses not. more money than they've ever made in their lives and including myself. So that's when I learned that there was, you know, a travel opportunity to go to New York, I would be making $10,000 a week, I'm not afraid. And I ended up getting accepted. Um, and I, they had told me, listen, like you need to pack your bags in two days and be here. Um, and you know, let's it's come to ground zero. Like, and line. when was this, what was the time frame on this? This was in earlier April, 2020. Okay. So very early on at, in the pandemic, when we, there was still a lot of unknowns, mm -hmm. but it sounds like for you, you weren't afraid because you saw the effective early protocols, correct? Even if you got COVID, it sounds to me like you had a lot of confidence in knowing that there were, there were treatment protocols that could um, protect you. Should you become infected? Yeah. And even I was following um, Dr. Chang, he was in Asia and they were doing studies on the high dose IV vitamin C. You know, humans are the only mammals that don't produce their own vitamin C. So mm -hmm. to, and it, it's one of the most powerful antioxidants. So it's like, we know that works, you know, give people mm -hmm. antioxidants that they are not producing and they'll be able to, you know, fight infection. This is anything, you know, mm -hmm. we, we've known that for a long time. And um, so we had that, we had the hydroxychloroquine, the zinc, we knew to get outside in sunlight. We knew all of these things, exercise, diet, all of it, not to be, you know, cooped up in your homes. Uh, even stress is, is a huge factor. You know, a lot of the patients that I did see trickle into the emergency room in Florida were, it was anxiety. Like that's a mm -hmm. very, very big issue. And, mm -hmm. you know, people don't understand that they're, anxiety attacks and that stress is, is sure. very real on sure. people, you know, it, it and, and that's probably by design, right. To create this, um, totally chaotic feeling in the American public mm -hmm. in order to continue perpetrating what I believe is one of the greatest lies that has ever been, been told mm -hmm. to the American public. So, okay. So fast forward here, you're, you're now, you find yourself in New York, at Elmhurst. Uh, tell me what that's like. Um, I'm going to fast forward just a little bit. Uh, when they told me to be there in two days, I was ready to go to work. Um, they, you know, they were calling it the frontline, frontline heroes, war zone. I've been to a, an actual war zone. When you land, you get to work. You, you go to war. You fight whatever it is. Not us. Um, I was bused or I was, I took a taxi over. They had me at the Marriott Marquis, a four-star hotel in Times Square. And I ended up sitting around for three days. Um, during that time, you know, I was shopping at CVS, Target, Walgreens. Mind you, the whole place is just eerie. No one's out in time. Like it was, it was like a movie. 
um, wow. Twilight Zone. Just I've never seen Times Square like that in my life. And mm-hmm. um, everyone's locked down in New York. But I, all these nurses are walking around and people are hanging out. Their Chipotle is open. And I'm like, so I started talking to other nurses and they had been there for two, three, four weeks sitting around and getting paid $10,000 a week. So that, that, I, I didn't understand that because if, if there are people being loaded into freezer trucks, like they were claiming and right. you know, there's not enough staff and da, 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 like we saw Cuomo every day, we need more nurses. We need more staff. Mm-hmm. There was staff. <laughs> I, re- I remember his daily briefings. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the hardest, it was that one of the hardest things for me to watch, especially being on the inside. Mm-hmm. And there's hundreds of staff, but they weren't ut- utilizing them. So they just kept bringing them in and these nurses were sitting around and, and, and because it showed a need for it. So they, they would take right. nurses uh, 400 at a time. So I was a group of 400. Two, two mm-hmm. days later, they'd bring 400 more, 400 more, 400 more. FEMA is funding this entire thing. We're all getting paid anywhere between 10 to $15,000 a week. And doctors were getting paid anywhere from 50 up to $80,000 a week. And this is- Unbelievable, unbelievable. And at the same time, they're not being utilized. Were there, was there a need in New York? Were you seeing an uptick in patients versus what you were seeing in Florida? Yeah, but it wasn't because of COVID. And I didn't learn that because I wanted to, I'm like, at least let me go clean a room or something. I mean, there, I'm sure there's something I can do, you know, I'm here. And it kind of, it, it really upset me because I left my kids, you know, and, and I knew that they were scared and they knew that I was going to New York and then I'm sitting there and it was almost like this like guilty feeling. Like I'm sitting here in a really nice hotel and I'm, my kids are, you know, it was just, I was I was angry mm-hmm. um, until I got assigned to Elmhurst Hospital. Um, like it was, I, I waited probably less time than everyone. It was around three or four days after I got there. So you didn't know you were going to Elmhurst prior to getting into New York. You were just, you just went into New York and then you went to the hotel and it sounds like you waited for your assignment. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. It was a random, it was a random draw and uh, mm-hmm. they just picked me lucky me to go to the epicenter, but you know what? Like, I, I feel like that's, that was, uh, that was my, my God's plan for me. You know, I mm-hmm. guess I was supposed to, I was supposed to go there. Um, but at the time I wasn't exactly happy to, you know, so I'm like, Oh, oh yeah. you know, I, the, the Ta- talk was that this was one of the worst hospitals. Okay. Yeah. So you get to Elmhurst and what's the first thing that you see? What is, you come upon this scene, is it just exactly like the, the media has portrayed where there's bodies lining the streets, it's total chaos, people are dying in the hallways? Um, no, there, there wasn't, you know, the line of ambulance outside and there wasn't a chaotic, you know, it, it wasn't chaotic until you walked inside. Um, the first thing that they did is gather us into a room and they had a sign gag orders and pretty much said nothing leaves here. And then they figured out what we were good at and what we had experience in, which I was sent to the ICU. Um, but originally I want, I was supposed to be in the emergency room until, you know, there, there wasn't a lot of uh, nurses with ICU experience and I didn't mm-hmm. want to go to the ICU because I just, you know, I, I didn't, want to deal with vents and all that. Like it, it was at that point, I already knew that vents were the wrong treatment. I watched Dr. Cameron Kyle Sadal, you know, speak out very mm-hmm. early on that, you know, we're, we're doing it wrong. You know, we're treating it wrong. So, so you knew even then that putting a patient on a ventilator, well, let me back up. You knew at that point that the fact that we were telling patients to stay in their homes wait until you get almost hypoxic where essentially you're not getting any oxygen and it becomes an ambulatory type um, situation where it's, it's critical care, then bring them in, then put them on a ventilator and give them um, medications at that point. So you knew it, you know, that that type of protocol would lead to a very bad patient outcome. Yeah. Um, I have a friend that works here in Tampa and she was working in the ICU and they were doing the same thing here. And she had told me like, 
they're literally putting the, anybody on event. And that was in Tampa. So she tried speaking out, it was fired. And this was early March. And then wow. I saw Dr. Cameron Kyle Sadell and, you know, in our hospital, the one that I worked at, we were not doing that because mm-hmm. it, it's not, it's common knowledge among any medical professional that the ventilator is the very, very, very last, last line of defense treatment to last ditch effort, you know, to save a patient. Um, and they were using this as first line defense because they wanted to keep a closed circuit mm-hmm. and um, they knew it was the wrong treatment. So patients were coming in and they were being denied oxygen and basic protocol that could have prevented them from getting into a life-threatening state. Is that what I'm hearing? Um, in New York. Mm-hmm. Is, uh, yeah, in New York at Elmhurst. Yeah. So patients that came to Elmhurst Hospital were all immediately pegged as, you know, either COVID or non-COVID. Um, mm-hmm. COVID positive, maybe they had a positive test. We know the tests were faulty. I didn't trust them in the beginning. I still don't trust them now. Um, and now there's clear evidence not to trust them. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, but then non-COVID patients, you know, like this is the perfect example of people that came in with anxiety. With anxiety you have difficulty breathing, you're scared, you're nervous. Um, there's a lot of different symptoms that come with that, or you could have had a cough. It didn't matter what you came in with. You were going to be a non-COVID patient because the hospitals, and this is around the country, had a price tag on admissions for the hospital. It was a financial incentive. And in New York at Elmhurst, it was $13,000 to admit any patient to the floor, COVID or COVID. I think they called it COVID rule out. In, in, okay. in New York. So that was $13,000. And then I learned when I was there that they also banned hydroxychloroquine. So we were using that successfully in Florida. I can no longer use that. Um, no, no IV vitamin C, nothing. Our, their treatment in the hospital was sedation. So they usually sedated patients in the emergency room and sent them up to the floor, which we know is a respiratory depressant, which is going to make you know, their breathing even more difficult and their oxygen saturations to tank. Um, and then they'll pop them on a ventilator. So that's another $39,000 for the hospital from FEMA, AKA taxpayer money. Um, and on the ventilator, they would receive paralytics, sedatives, maybe a couple antibiotics to, and, uh, until they went into multi, multi-system organ failure. And then boom, you know, they were sent out to the freezer trucks. Some, some, in some cases, it was $10,000 a death. Um, and then all autopsies were banned. All family was banned from the hospital. There's no liability. Um, and that was the turnkey style operation of what happened to these patients. Um, so it sounds to me like every, every person that was coming was being admitted into Elmhurst. It was essentially a death sentence. Uh, 100%. Um, when I got there, 100% of all the patients had died every single patient. And I started questioning, I was just there like a couple days. I think my first day on the floor, I went back to my hotel room and I just broke down. I I got on my hands and knees and I just prayed and I'm like, I can't, there's no way I can continue this um, and sleep at night for the rest of my life. And I got on a Zoom call. I asked uh, several of my friends and, and nursing colleagues, like I just needed to vent and got on a on a call and I just spilled it. I just said, this is what's happening and I don't know what to do and just vented. And Mm -hmm. a friend of mine, um, her name is Sarah. She's a nurse practitioner here, um, took it to Facebook and and shared my story anonymously. Mm -hmm. This was within the first week I was there. And she got death threats. She had people coming after her children, after her husband, after her job, after her license just for sharing my story. She's a, you're a liar. So I saw this happening. She had to shut down everything. She was terrified. Um, and when I saw that happening to her, that's when I knew that, you know what, if I don't have proof of this, they're going to do the same exact thing to me. And this is not going to, you know, there's going to be no accountability ever someday. So I contacted some New York attorneys that, that I had known. And I said, listen, this is happening I need proof. 
and mm-hmm. we need to file lawsuits, um, you know, against the Department of Health, uh, Cuomo, everybody. Like, this is a mass genocide. This is like Nazi Germany happening all over again, except they're not being incinerated. They're being put in freezer trucks and buried somewhere. So what, I mean, 100% of patients dying and listening to these protocols, I, I almost can't wrap my mind around it. What were other nurses, these other nurses that were being flown in that you were working with and these doctors, what were they feeling? I mean, everyone felt the same way because we were bused from our hotel in Times Square to Queens, New York, where Elmhurst is. It's a good half hour there and half hour back. The entire time, everybody was talking about how horrible it was. And everybody knew we were all on the same page that it was very, very bad. But um, very, very few spoke up. Zero spoke up out of Elmhurst Hospital outside of me um, because the paychecks were so great. You know, they, they put the, the, the profit over their patients, you know, and, and how they sleep at night. I don't know, but, um, we all knew everybody knew. So you guys had open conversations Mm -hmm. on your journey to and from work about Mm -hmm. what was happening in this hospital and the, and the end result for these, these patients, but yet nobody's speaking up. Mm -mm. Unbelievable. Our own team leads, um, ugh, we had a, a group chat on WhatsApp and mm-hmm. it was between our team leads and then all the staff on the way, ways to communicate. Our own team leads would go up in rooms and, and do these dances and, and send us these dances. And it, it, they were literally dancing while people, while these patients were being, I mean, at one point we ran out of body bags, we're stuffing them in, in black trash bags and, tossing them into freezer trucks and like that I just could not wrap my head around it how how people were just okay with this but you know I am like you know this is history repeating itself you know this is exactly what they did in Nazi Germany and that's where my I guess my prior military experience while why I always say like I think God put me in that position so I would be able to recognize this it was a psychological operation you know they were calling us heroes over and over and over again and clapping there was parades every night at seven and people started believing it sure you know, if you say something enough over and over people will believe it well everyone believed that they were a hero and at any point did you say to the the administration or to your fellow nurses why are we not using hydroxychloroquine why are we not using ivermectin or any of these these known um, effective treatments that i've seen used effectively in florida yeah i mean i started asking that the first week and and then i even went all the way up to administration through my team leads up to and i was just told to shut up the entire time that's when i had the attorneys send me, they sent me a pair of spy glasses and that's when I started going undercover. And I actually, I think that's in my expose. I did ask another doctor, why aren't we using other treatments? And their response was, well, it doesn't work. And my response was, well, what we're doing is not working. So what's the harm in trying? Right. So you got on camera evidence and examples mm-hmm. of for lack of a better term, murder being committed. Yes. Wow. Yes. And what did you do with this information? Um, It's with my attorneys right now. um, And I can't really get into a lot of it, but I will say that there, there is, uh, I am making headway and I do, I do believe that there is going to be judgment uh, served on, on these people. And I, and I do believe that there is going to be, uh, a Nuremberg 2.0 and it's going to originate in New York. What's some of the biggest lies that you think the American public has been told? Man. Um, I think that, I think the most tragic lie is that treatments that work don't work. 
I think to withhold treatment is the most probably unethical thing uh, another one human can do to another. Um, they're knowingly letting people die and they're brainwashing them to the extent that now people, good people are turning on other good good people. You know, they're creating this divide in order to conquer us. And this is why I feel like this, the one thing that everyone can unite on and agree on is that we all want our loved ones to be healthy and we want sure. the best ultimate treatment and cares for them. And so that's part of the reason that I felt the need to expose this because it's not going down a good path right? and it's going to get worse. And I think that to unite people in, in under this one common goal that we, we all want to be healthy, but we also want truth and transparency. And together, I think that, you know, we, we can overturn this nightmare that we're going through, but it's just going to take a lot more people to realize that they've been lied to despite, you know, not knowing. What has been your backlash in the medical community for telling the truth? Um, I think like when my expose first came out, uh, it was, I got fired in, on May 25th, 2020. I was supposed to be there an additional eight weeks actually. Um, and uh, I took my undercover video and put parts of it in an expose to get to the public. Um, the backlash that I got, the most intense, horrible backlash was from other medical providers, specifically nurses, um, because they were the, the main, I guess, complaint was that I stole their hero status. I don't care. You know, like wow. there's nothing heroic about, about what was being done. But also, I think that there's a there were a lot of them that were very worried because they like like I said before, everybody knew what was going on. Mm -hmm. And when they found out that I was undercover, you know, they were using it as, you know, you're violating HIPAA. You're not, you don't violate HIPAA if your chain of command won't listen to you. And if you plan on filing lawsuits with that, which both of them, you know, I, I can check off. So right. there is no HIPAA violation when genocide is occurring behind locked right. doors that families have no idea about. Um, that was kind of, that was probably like the hardest. I, I really thought that they would rally around and a lot more people would stand up. I was trying to like, I guess, pave the way for other people to do it, mm -hmm. but I didn't see it. And that was really, that was very difficult. Yeah. What's amazing to me is that, um, anyone who's been trained in the medical profession, you, I think there's a natural assumption that people who are in your, your shoes, you enter your profession because you want to serve the community. You want to serve the people around you. And of course, there's that very basic tenet of the, of the Hippocratic Oath where you further do, you first do no further harm. And it seems to me that that has just been absolutely decimated. And I, I, I struggle to even fathom how people in the medical profession can willingly and knowingly continue to engage in treatments that I think it's, it's very clear at this point, the, the terrible outcomes for patients, like knowingly putting someone on a ventilator before trying other treatment protocols that have been proven to have better outcomes. Right. I mean, and you're, and you're in an environment where, like you said, there's bodies all over the place. You're putting, using trash bags to put bodies in, in freezer trucks and I would let, let me ask you about the families because I've heard some pretty horrible stories about the, these patients and their families being, you know, having to say goodbye to them through a window over, over a phone or through an iPad. What did you experience with that? Um, there, there were so many lies being told, you know, um, that was one thing that I, I, I was just so disgusted by so many things, but you know, they, they would lie to the families quite a bit. And you know, the, the, they would show what they wanted them to see on this iPad. They would make their bed look nice, prop them up. But like, what was under those sheets? Um, I recently shared a, a couple of photos that um, were taken um, 
there's feces dried for two, three weeks. I mean, they, these uh, people weren't, they weren't being treated like human beings, you know, and they were essentially left to die. But that is not the story that they were told by the doctors and nurses. And there were those family members that called over and over and over again, which I would have, I would have busted sure. down that door if my mm -hmm. family member was in there knowing what I, I know, you know, mm -hmm. no. They, they would like, you know, make fun of them or like call them difficult. And, and I just, they lost the sense of humility as providers. But then I thought back, I'm like, you know, when I was in nursing school, there was a whole lot of nurses, nursing students that weren't really there for the right reasons either. You know, this nursing is a great job security and it's good mm -hmm. paycheck. So, you know, there are people that entered this profession for the paycheck and, and it was very clear who entered nursing for the right reasons and who entered nursing for the wrong reasons when we were put in a situation where it was essentially a free for all playground. So you could mm -hmm. do whatever you wanted. There was a lot of good nurses in there. You know, one of them was working night shift while I worked day shift. We had the same patients. We were trying to like do whatever we could to block the doors and, and you know, keep residents out from experimenting. I mean, there was a lot of bad things happening, you know, within, but there was, there, there was those of us still that were, were doing whatever we could to try to save, you know, a life, you know, if, if we could. Well, thank God for people like you. Uh, I, it, it never ceases to amaze me. Do, when you're in nursing school, do you guys get training on ethics and um, human compassion and almost a, almost like a Myers-Briggs, if you will, to make sure that you're in the right profession. Yeah. I mean, you, there's multiple ethics courses and, um, you know, it just, it, it goes, it went right out the window and we're also mandatory reporters by law. So if we see something that's happening, we're, we're to say something. Um, right. and if we don't, then we can be held liable. And I think that's where a lot of the nurses and doctors, especially ones that I worked with in Elmhurst, you know, were very upset, you know, when, when they found out I was recording because they're part of it, you know, sure. and, um, they, they, didn't, did... they didn't uphold their oath and the nurses, we take a Nightingale pledge. And one of the, a part in the pledge is that we'll, we'll, we will not knowingly administer any medications that we know will harm our patients. Wow. That's the pledge. We have a specific pinning ceremony um, after graduation and, and we say this pledge and that is technically the nurse's oath. Um, and you know, how, how many of these nurses were, were hanging, you know, excessive sedatives and paralytics and medications that they right. knew were not okay to be giving our patients. So now fast forward, um, now we're at a point where they're trying to mass vaccinate our children in order yeah. to attend any form of schooling or engage in mainstream society. Really, all of society, they're trying to mass vaccinate, but it, it feels particularly um, devious to have an attempt to mass vaccinate our children, yeah. knowing that first and foremost, children are not vectors of transmission, right? They're actually at statistically zero risk unless they have major and multiple comorbidities. Uh, I'm not sure if you heard that Pfizer got approval from the FDA yesterday for a booster for five to 11 year olds. It sounds to me like you've been um, out of practicing, um, you know, in the medical practitioner world for a little while as a result of, of your fight, which is an incredible fight and thank God you're doing it. Um, what are your thoughts on, on the vaccine and have you been hearing anything about negative consequences for people that have been vaccinated and in particular, anyone in the pediatric population? Um, I, I am, I guess I'm appalled at it. Um, I don't even really think that it is a vaccine and I don't feel that we need a vaccine when we know we have treatments and that the fact that children don't die from COVID uh, for the majority, unless they have, you know, extensive health history. Um, 
and even if if even with that is is probably the treatments that they were denied mm-hmm. so i i think it's absolutely sinister and evil um we're seeing children have heart attacks now um they're gaslighting the injuries and deaths that are occurring um and and i experienced this with my own son you know and he's he was 12 months now he's nine years old last year i was in the hospital with him for for three weeks um because of you know a vaccine mm-hmm. and it's very very difficult to be able to speak about this because anyone that does is extremely censored and sure. and need to look crazy however i think that the majority not just american i think of the world they don't want this even the people that have gotten you know their first two then they got a booster and now another you know moving the goalposts and here you need another booster they're getting sick of it too because they're mm-hmm. still getting covid and they're seeing it and i think that's why you know th- there is a lot of a lot more people speaking up about it and it's becoming it's not becoming so taboo to speak about vaccines right. because people are right. starting to dig and they don't like that but um to do it to children i think is one of the most evil things that that they could possibly do um right. I guess they, they couldn't get them in the hospitals on the ventilators. So now they have to, you know, get around the other way with injecting right. them. <laughs> it's DNA. unbelievable, right? I mean, yeah. I, I can't wrap my mind around why on earth. And I have to always question what would be the motive? What is your motive to vaccinate a subset of society that has no risk yeah. uh, of, of the virus, no risk, they're not vectors of transmission. So what would be the motive to want to mass vaccinate um, these children. And I, I constantly ask people, I'm, I'm waiting. At some point, I think maybe we will get that answer um, and we'll get it, unfortunately, historically. But in this moment, it sure feels like we are in the fight of our lives. And unfortunately, I don't think people even realize it. Um, I, I, as I go through my daily life, I, I try to ask people as much as possible about you know, what they know about the bills that are out there, how they feel about the vaccines, are they going to vaccinate their children? And it just never ceases to amaze me. Either people are unaware or they know, but much like you're describing uh, with your experience at Elmhurst, they want to have their head in the sand. They really don't, they don't want to be the ones to speak out and to take a stand. Um, I, I do believe that they, they want full control. Um, I know that there's a meeting in Switzerland coming up uh, with the World Health Organization. Um, that, like, years ago, I was like, "That's so far-fetched!" Like the One World Order, and ultimately, it, it makes sense. You know, they they have been able to completely overturn our constitutional rights mm-hmm. as Americans uh, with a, a pandemic. Uh, public health threat. So if there's a public health threat that they deem uh, necessary, aka likely created themselves, they're able to, well, they they have been able to, they're they're not supposed to be completely trample over our rights and determine, you know, what we do or don't do, if we can fly, if we can't, if kids can go to school, if they can't. So ultimately, this is a whole lot of control, government Mm -hmm. overreach control. What is their angle? I don't know. I don't want to know. And that's why I think it's really important that everybody fight back right now, you know, and and be on the same page. And I do think that healthcare is the number one top priority because they, they have been able to completely destroy everything that our four, our four founders fought for Mm -hmm. in, in one little public health threat that it's, it's mind blowing. And now to, you know, go to the world health organization and allow one corrupt organization to control the entire world. Um, that's, this is, uh, this, we are literally in a fight for our lives and a fight for our future generations. Right. I mean, it sure seems dangerous to, to wield, to hand over power to, an organization that had clearly a, a failed response mm-hmm. to what happened to COVID-19. I mean, and we could probably 
dig down for hours as to the yeah. origins of, of, of this, but going to your point of, of our freedoms, I remember very early on, my personal experience was that I was a little bit cautious, probably the first week, just because we didn't really know what was going on, right? There was so much um, uncertainty. I would say after about a week, I remember going out of my house after the lockdowns and the way the media was portraying it, I expected there to be bodies lying all over the street. The people were literally just dropping dead. And it was clearly the, the complete polar opposite of that. Uh, people weren't dying in the streets. And actually, I think in, in where we are in Southern California, our hospitals weren't even filled up. And, um, you know, so you have this, this over-dramatization of what what's happening and it just creates this um veil of 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 total lie uh that's being perpetrated on the people of this country and i just remember thinking something's not right something's not right and at the same time you know you observe what's going on around you right so they would say if you have to leave your house you have to have an n95 if you can you should wear two masks right but then if you if you have to, to fly on an airplane, you can take your mask down to eat, but you have to promptly put it back up. I mean, nothing, if you look at preventing disease transmission protocols, none of this made any sense, mm-hmm. right? Um, you know, you can, you can go and you can sit down at a restaurant and you can have a meal, but then it's the minute that you stand up, you must put your mask back on. I mean, I could go on and on and on about, and I'm sure everyone else who's listening to this program um, feels the same way, right? We can probably all cite extreme inconsistencies, not only inconsistencies in our daily lives, but inconsistencies with what the media was telling you, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, you had Dr. Fauci at one point saying, you really don't need to wear masks. They're probably not that effective. And then turn right around and say, you must wear a mask. In fact, I would suggest two masks. And then you see him at a baseball game and the mask is, is around his chin. So it's, it's clear that to me early on that whatever they were trying to, to feed us was had less to do with health and safety and more to do with control. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and even the, like the lockdown, um, people just got more sick, you know, the early treatment wasn't happening and people were afraid to go to the hospitals because of what they, you know, pro- proclaimed was COVID. Um, of what people were dying from when ultimately it was their own protocols and they knew it, you know, and, and, um, when they were called out on it, you know, even with provided like evidence, um, it was, you know, just, uh, denied and, and, you know, like people that stood up, um, like many of the doctors myself, um, were made to look crazy, but Mm -hmm. two years later, we were right, <laughs> you yeah. know? Yeah. It, uh, it, but it, it, sadly, that two years, there's a lot of people that lost loved ones mm-hmm. because they didn't either get the message or maybe they didn't believe it. So there's a lot of people that I get messages from, including a lot of nurses that were like, you know what? I, I thought that you were crazy, you know, but you, you were, you know, I'm sorry, you know? And, and I'm like, I, I'm sorry that you know, the, the media portrayed it like that, you know, it's just, mm-hmm. it, it, it's hard to believe that. Well, it's hard to believe. And I, and I believe that the media is also culpable in this. There's the, the media has a huge hand in the crime that's been perpetrated on the American public. So tell, tell everyone, tell our listeners how they can follow you. Um, let's hear a little bit about your book and what next steps are for you. Um, yeah, so I guess my, uh, we- my website is, it's pretty basic. It just has my expose. If you haven't seen it yet with undercover footage, um, and my book link a little bit about me is nurseerin.org. Yeah. So I have a, an email list. Um, that's, I- that's Aaron with an E, correct? Yes. E-R-I-N. N-U-R-S-E-E-R-I-N.org. Um, I wrote my book actually very, very early on. Uh, it was probably like the fastest thing that I ever wrote. The intention was, um, cause 
I knew I was going to be censored and they can only burn so many. To this day, they will not put it on bookshelves. So um, you can get it online or signed copy on my website. Um, but I have another one coming out shortly um, mm -hmm. with kind of like the follow-up. Uh, I will say that I've never been sued. Um, I have my license and there is going to be accountability, I guess, in fruition here soon. Um, starting in New York, but the whole totem pole will hopefully fall down. So I've been fighting this for uh, over two years now and I'm not quitting because they, they've, they've blacklisted me from nursing. So I can't even, I can't even apply for a job if I wanted to um, in the, in the mainstream nursing, but you know what, even if I could, I wouldn't want to be a part of that system anymore. I want to put it out of business. So there definitely needs to be a, an, a major change in the healthcare system right now. When, when we have doctors and nurses that are complicit in propagating a lie against the American people and going against what the very basic Hippocratic oath, um, you know, tenants are, it, there needs to be a major overhaul of the system. When you have doctors that are willfully engaging in medical malpractice by giving patients a protocol that they know will unfortunately lead to a very bad outcome and denying patients effective treatment, uh, something has to change. I went to a doctor not too long ago. I actually have a heart condition and I said, listen, I can't wear a mask for, for a long time or I will end up going into a cardiac event. And the response that I was met with was, well, that's the rules. I mean, we just, we have to follow the rules. And of course my response was, well, you actually will no longer be my doctor because I'm not interested in having someone treat me that's not interested in actually supporting my health and safety. Mm -hmm. And it, I see it all the time. Mm -hmm. And so I agree, we, we need a total overhaul of, of what's happening in this country with our medical system. Erin, tell me a little bit about the, the patient treatment and were there any other individuals that were working in the hospital that you were working at that had um, an influence on your patients? Um, yeah, so there was very early on, I noticed workers in black scrubs. Um, we all wore navy blue. So it was just, and, and, and no, they didn't wear name tags. And I didn't really know exactly where they were from. I just thought that it was just part of the hospital. And so I started kind of paying attention to it. And then I started learning that they were actually hired by the government as far as I know um, to, they were essentially like experimenting with patients. So they would be going into rooms, they're, they're taking blood, um, mm -hmm. they're hanging medications. I didn't know what was going on until they reached my patient's room. Mm -hmm. And I stopped one of them and I said, whoa, whoa, whoa. You know, she actually gave me, she gave me, um, some vials. She's like, I need you to draw blood. And I, and I refused. And I said, mm -hmm. first of all, what is this for? And she goes, it doesn't matter. You need to draw it. And I said, all right, where's the consent for this? Mm -hmm. Even if these patients are in ventilators and they, and they, they cannot speak for themselves, they still require a consent from a family member. You can't mm -hmm. just do whatever you want and expect it to just be okay. Like where there is still a process. There was no consent. I am. I looked through the patient's charts. I'm like, there is no consent on file. I, like you're not, I don't agree with you doing this. She threatened me and said, if you don't, you know, I'm, uh, then I'm going up to your manager. And um, so they, so she, they she threatened you. She threatened you because you had the audacity to yeah. ask where the consent was and look through the patient file mm -hmm. to see if the family members had signed any type of consent form. Yeah, so there's these medical prof professionals dressed in all black, no name tags, uh, believe they're working for the government. They wouldn't uh, tell me who they are and they're wanting blood draws from my patients. Um, and I had saw them going into other patients' rooms prior, you know, mm -hmm. taking blood, hanging medications. Um, and that's when I stopped them, like, where's the consent form? 
you know, like just because these people can't speak for themselves because they're all on ventilators doesn't mean that you can just go do whatever you want. There was no consent from family members, nothing. And that's when she got very, very angry with me, threatened to go to my managers, you know, like it was very, it was very eerie. Um, she ultimately did come and get blood for my patient, um, but I did refuse that she hung this medication and it turns out it was remdesivir. So they were experimenting this entire time with multiple different medications, but specifically the remdesivir. And all of these patients it re were tanking. Every single patient that I had at Elmhurst Hospital died except for one guy who was a drug addict and the paralytics and sedatives you know, weren't enough for him. And he ended up pulling his own tube out, saving his own life. Every other patient ended up in the freezer truck. But the oh government found that that was okay to just, you know, take what they, they felt was theirs, AKA like a patient's blood without consent of family members and then threaten any nurses, you know, that, that stood in the way of the patient, like as patient advocates, we are, the patient's eyes, ears, everything. And if we can't do our job, then where does that leave everything? That's why hospital liability is so, so, so important even right now in protecting, you know, lives, literally sure. lives. And so that is just another piece of the, of the disgusting treatment um, that was occurring, that is still occurring behind locked doors of liability free hospitals. Yeah. I, I'm speechless. Mm -hmm. That is unbelievable. I, I, so I cannot knew it wasn't working the whole time. They've known it wasn't working. Yeah. Now they're pushing it on children too. I mean, wow. Yeah. It's evil. Well, right. Because, uh, what is it? Gilead's, um, petition to get approval to use remdesivir as low as six months. Is that correct? I think that's what mm -hmm. I heard. Um, sickening, absolutely mm -hmm. sickening. Wow. Aaron, it has been an absolute, absolute pleasure. You are a true warrior. Um, it gives me faith that there are people in the world like you and I'm blown away by your story. I can't wait for everyone to hear about it. And I encourage everyone to go to nurseerin.org, get her book, look at the footage, look at what she's been through and you know, hold your head high. You have saved, you could be responsible for saving many, many lives. So it's an honor to meet you and thank you so much for your time today. Thank you, Laura. Thank you for having me. From all of us at The Unity Project, thank you for listening to today's podcast. We hope to continue producing content that amplifies voices, strategies, and resources. Please keep in mind that The Unity Project is a 501c3 nonprofit organization that relies on the contributions of our generous supporters to fuel the work we do in this movement. If you value our efforts, please consider making a tax-deductible contribution today by visiting our website at www.unityproject.com and clicking the donate button. We very much appreciate your continued support and confidence, without which our work wouldn't be possible.